0: Welcome to this edition of Principles Podcasts, hosted by Larry Johnson, founder of The Eight Principles. Each month, Principles Podcasts brings you an interview with a recognized thought leader or cutting-edge professional in the world of philanthropy. An Oracle League member exclusive, Principles Podcasts gives you hard-hitting insights from the fundraising professionals and philanthropists who are making it happen. And now, your host, Larry Johnson.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Larry Johnson for yet another Oracle podcast, and I am particularly honored today to have with me Sean Olds. Um, you know, he's a technology, he's a thought leader in communications and technology world, um, and those of you who know me know I'm a little bit of stance about technology, but I can guarantee you that Sean is a good guy. He's one of the good ones, and he's the co-founder of Boodle AI. Uh, welcome, Sean.
2: Thank you so much, Larry. I'm honored to be here. I appreciate you having me.
1: Well, I'm de- I'm really really honored because you're one of those one of those unusual kind of guys who can float and go in different directions. And you know, I think what's the word polymath? I mean, you don't say that much anymore, but I think you probably qualify. Uh, you can do a lot of different things, um, and you do them well. You have a military background. You have an analytics background. You've been involved with nonprofits and serving them. You have a, you know, you've been involved in business, and now you're doing this this tech company for nonprofits. And as we were just conversing before we started this, you even altered your pricing model so that you could appeal to a broader market. That, uh, that you'd be able to, to spread it around more. So um, could you take just a couple of seconds or minutes and tell us what is Boodle AI and, and what is it they're trying to accomplish as a company?
2: Well, yes, well, Larry, first of all, you put a, a wonderful spin. I'm going to start using these as my publicist because most people would just look at my resume and think I have ADD. But um, <laughs> we, my, co, my co-founder and I developed Boodle AI um, basically, out of our frustration, we, we have both, since we graduated from West Point, served, in addition to everything we've done professionally, served on nonprofit boards for 20-plus years. And um, we've also been entrepreneurs, so we've raised a lot of money, and it was just frustrating to see how ineffective and inefficient it was in the nonprofit space. And so we wanted to find a, a way to democratize data science and machine learning for nonprofits. Um, We tell people when we talk to people in the past two years of the pandemic, we've all spent a great deal of time on Zoom, and I've put this bit out there many a times. I bet people that 90% of the people they have spoken to could not explain how video over IP works. And it's because they don't have to because Zoom just made it easy enough to do a press of a button and you can engage in video over IP. And so that was the genesis of Boodle was creating a platform that, allowed people at the press of a button to leverage AI and machine learning so they could focus what they're good at, which is typically for a development team, donor engagement, or for a nonprofit at large,
1: their mission. Okay. So uh, give, me a, give me an example of how a nonprofit might use your product or, or the system that you offer.
2: Sure, I mean, we like to I, I call it cheating. We like to cheat when we start, we do we run typically what we call a hidden gems campaign as every nonprofit has donors sitting in their email list and their low donor list um, that have the potential to do more. And so mm-hmm. an organization will bring to us uh, purely a list of name and email addresses of their best donors, whether their best donors are major gift donors, monthly recurring donors, however they define it, And with just the name and an email address, our system has the ability to find the Larry Johnson that's in the donor database, identify him as the Larry Johnson that lives in Boise, Idaho, and not the Larry Johnson that lives in Boca Raton, Florida. And then we bring in over 1,200 different data points about Larry. Those data points, though, that we use are all what we call affinity-based data points. Most organizations that run predictive analytics today look at what we call intent-based data points, so they're looking at what Larry what websites Larry was on, how long he visited, what he tweeted, all looking at his near-term intent. When we started the company, what we wanted to do was leverage data points that would look at a person's true affinity for a cause. Because our premise was that if you find someone who's got a true affinity, they're going to become a lifetime donor. And I'm sure you know the statistic, Larry, that 80% of all first-time donors don't come back. And that becomes very expensive to the nonprofit. So we wanted to find a way to help them find more of those 20%. Um, and bring more of those in so they've got more lifetime donors to their organization. So they would feed that list of major gift donors in. Um, we had an organization that did this. They gave us 850 major gift donors. They then applied it to about 3,000 people that had in their donor database that had never donated more than $100. We were able to come up with a dozen names, and the very first phone call they made, the person made a $20,000 donation. And the only thing they were kind of disappointed about was this person had been donating $100 a year for eight years.
1: Oh, that's a pretty good statement. Now, without, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to reveal proprietary secrets here, but, but what are some of the affinity points? What kinds of affinity points are you looking at?
2: So we look at things like we bring in where a person has lived for the past 10 years, where they've worked for the past 10 years, voting records, who they've donated to politically and philanthropically, um, a decade worth of um, credit card transaction data. Um, We also do, instead of looking at wealth as a finite point of view of where does a person stand today, we look at wealth on a time series basis over the past eight years. Because it's one thing to know that Larry Johnson is worth $10 million today. But if I know that eight years ago you were worth $50 million, you might not feel as, as wealthy or as well off. Whereas if I can show you were worth half a million dollars eight years ago and you're now worth 10 your million, you're a person who's on a good trajectory that would make for a good major gift donor. So we try and bring in a variety of different data points. Um, as I said, 1,200 of them. Wealth is just one of them. Um, we also look at things like how people have responded historically. So, you know, today it's not about just getting the right message to the individual. It's about getting that message in the venue they want to be communicated in. Some people would much rather give a donation via text, while others would never give a donation unless they get a phone call from the organization.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, that is so crucial because uh, one of the things that I that I tell people or we teach um, in uh, the eight principles. Principle two is begin at the beginning, and a part of that is communicating with donors in the way they want to be communicated with. It seems so obvious. <laughs> it does seem obvious, but unfortunately it isn't obvious to a lot of people um, because, as you know, nonprofits tend to be um, inward-focused even though they're outward-serving, um, and, that, and that tends to... to just so sort of limit what effectiveness they can have. Uh, so, what do you do with regard to uh, helping? Um, you've, been, you've been very good, obviously, at identifying um, potential donors that are sitting out there just waiting to be asked in the right way. Um, how do you? How are, are you able to help them? Uh, and one of the other critical tasks is, and that is building an authentic relationship with with any of the people they work with. Is your system able to do that in any way?
2: Absolutely. So, um, you know, as you said, one of the big things is building that relationship. So, the, the, the individual on the other end feels a connection. So, one of the very first things we do, we've built our platform into a crawl, walk, run experience. Um, that run experience is what I described a minute ago of taking your best donors, having the machine build a bespoke model for your organization. So, this is not a model on what a major gift donor looks like. It's on a Uh, model on what your organization's major gift donor looks like. On the crawl phase at the very beginning, the very first thing we do with bringing in these 1,200 data points is just build personas. So if an organization loads up, say, their monthly recurring donors or their major gift donors, in minutes we can provide them insights on how these people skew from a gender point of view, a political point of view. Um, You can tell them what their average household income is. We also create a list of over uh, 25 top interests that that cohort has. Um, we actually had one nonprofit that used that. They fed in their 550 gala attendees that were coming last month, and they mm-hmm. used the interest to curate their auction items. Rather than just throwing auction items up that they could get a hold of, they went out and sought out things that were of interest to their donors, causing them to get a huge increase in how much they raised through their auction. Um, The other way that organizations do this, though, is just by understanding who the the people are, they can communicate far differently. So we actually had an organization, when we talked to the development team, they told us inexplicably they knew who their best donors were. They were white men between the ages of 40 and 50 that were married and in business, and they like to be communicated via email. And so we ran their entire donor base through looking at the – they. While we only need name and email address, they also fed us transactional data as well, so we could use that model on that. And what we were actually able to show them is that their best donors were single professional women between the ages of 25 and 40 who preferred to be communicated with via text. And when we narrowed (laughs) down and asked them why they thought it was the the men who were businessmen, they said, well, that's who we always talk to. Those are the people who call us to confirm that our donation came in and then talk to us. And and so it was interesting, the next month, they and all their creative was geared towards men in that category and sent out via email. The next month, they changed all their creative up and sent it out via text. Their monthly donations went up over
1: 25% that month. You know, there's another one of the eight principles operating, principle four, and that is – learn and plan. First learn who are the people that would naturally support you and then plan on the best way to reach them. There again. Um, <laughs> I mean it just absolutely it sounds so straight it sounds so straightforward and yet it really isn't, Sean. You know that. People have these well, assumptions.
2: And, and as I said at the outset, Larry, I've sat on boards for 20 years now, and I've watched this go on. And, and usually, typically, and I sit on smaller organizations, less than five million dollars a year. They they just don't have the resources. I mean, the the big organizations, the ones you you, you see that you know are over 100 million dollars a year, they have the resources to divide this out, and they've done a lot of this work manually. Um, but a smaller organization just doesn't have that at their fingertips. And and you asked at the outset what the goal was. The goal was to to simplify it so much the same way Zoom has video over IP that organizations could do this and they could learn and plan, as she said, um, where that learning phase was very easy for them. They didn't need to go out and get new degrees or anything else. Um, and from that learning, they could then do what they're
1: usually pretty good at, which is the planning. Mm-hmm. um uh, i always like to um ask uh, my guests on a couple to they can relate um you know one you want you related a couple of success stories which are really good and so i'm, I'm going to flip the table and question you know we, we can uh, uh, remove the names to protect the guilty but uh what are some of the really um uh, or one or two of the really, uh, like, uh, like I can't save this kind of cases you run up against, and what were, what were the reasons why?
2: It, I just want to make sure I understand your question. Where, where has this not worked well is what you're saying?
1: Yeah, well, where have you run into a client that it's just – it's not going to work for whatever reason, and it's probably not the technology, but it's it's something you know it's, it's something inherent in the organization. And I'd like you to kind of address what you think that was that kept them where they should go.
2: Yeah, actually, there there is a place where we run into it a little bit on the technology side, and it's because of the decision we made, which was the type of data we go after, going after that affinity-based data, and that is in. Um, currently uncurable diseases, um, nonprofits. So Mm -hmm. if you're donating to the ASPCA, it's probably because you have an affinity for animals. If you're donating towards a veteran's cause, it's probably because you have an affinity towards veterans. And that's what our system really starts to ferret out. But if you take a look at people who donate to cancer, donate to diabetes, or go down the list of diseases that are out there right now, those individuals typically have either been affected themselves or have a family member affected. And that's That's why they donate. They don't have an affinity towards it. So if we work with or have, have tried to work with smaller healthcare related nonprofits, we sometimes run into a problem because the model just doesn't build as well. Those people aren't there for an affinity. Now the very large ones, we have worked with a couple of large ones who have a donor base of thousands of people, who have self-identified as never having the disease and not having any family members, but they're just passionate about it. And so that's what we'll typically build a model on and then go look for more of those people. Um, but there there are definitely places where technology doesn't work. Um, the, the good news is so far what we've run into is it's worked in most areas.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so what's next? with Google. I mean, where is this? Are you happy the way it is? Are you going to be expanding it? I mean, you don't have to announce that you're about to change jobs or anything, but what's next?
2: (laughs) Well, the the what's next actually happened just in the past few months. So the, the engine we built was very much focused on prospect prioritization. So organization has a list of these hidden gems, their email newsletter list, their low value donors, Let's help them sort through those. Uh, last year, it was helping food banks, which saw an almost order of magnitude of new donors, but they were very cognizant of the fact that 80% of them weren't coming back. So how do we take all those new donors and help the development team focus on the 20% who are going to be their best donors? What we hadn't been able to do in ju- until just the past 90 days was donor acquisition. And so for the first time in our company's history, we decided to partner with a company and use technology that wasn't or our tech stack, um, which is known as IP household targeting. Um, and IP household targeting has typically been used in donor or customer cultivation because there are about a dozen companies out there that have mapped every postal address to an IP address. And so now companies that spend a lot on direct mail instead of direct mailing their customers could actually almost for the same price send 30 days of banner ads into their homes and hopefully activate them that way. We went through the exercise last year of mapping all 240 million adult Americans. And in doing so, what that has allowed us to do is we mirror our technology with IP targeting. We're now able to take that organization that says, hey, here's what my best monthly recurring donors look like, and I want more of them. And then we can apply it to a geography like, say, Philadelphia. And we can now capture, we can go model 3 million households in Philadelphia and help that nonprofit find the 3,000 households that look the most like their current monthly recurring donors. And now what they can do is then send ads for 30 days into their households every time that household opens up their ESPN web browser or their news web browser and see that organization pop up in
1: front of them. Wow. I'm just listening. (laughs) uh, I'm kind of soaking it in. Uh, just, you know, I think the, uh, a lot of the listeners know this, but just uh, to, to give you some context, um, I'm, and um, I'm an engineering, I'm an engineering graduate, but I was the last engineering class to use a slide rule. So I'm, I'm adjusting to some of the new things that are out there. So anyway, I asked a young man then, I guess I met him a couple of weeks ago, and he was an engineering student, and I told him that he didn't know what a slide rule was, and I'm like, oh, well, let me show <laughs> you what it is. You know, and uh, so it was it was news to him. Oh, look at this thing. Um, so what do you think, and this, I want you to cast your net a little wider here when you think about this before we answer. What would you say are the one or two really fundamental challenges that um, what I call uh, public benefit corporations, otherwise known as nonprofits, are going to be facing in the next decade?
2: Um, well, the, the first one, and, and it's it's been the fundamental issue, is just is dollars. Um, we live in a very very um, uh, generous society, probably one of the most generous in the globe. Last year, 465 billion dollars was donated to nonprofits, and a third of that came from high net worth individuals, and that's a that's a, a, an amazing testament to this country because those individuals weren't donating for tax reasons; they were donating for passion. Um, the other third, of course, coming from corporations and foundations, and the last third coming from high net worth individuals. Um, but dollars, you know, as organizations grow and they need to do more and they take on more, they're going to need more dollars. Um, I think one of the biggest problems a lot of nonprofits have, and I've actually discouraged a lot of people that I talk to who who are trying to start a nonprofit from actually starting one because there's 1.5 million nonprofits out there in this country. And and I asked them, well, you know, are there other nonprofits doing what you're trying to do? And and would your energy, your time, your resources be better spent catapulting someone who's already got a foundation by you going through the next three, four years trying to build that foundation up? And that's very evident in the space that, you know, is very near and dear to me, which is the veteran service organization space. But there's 45,000 veteran service organizations um oh, wow. and I'd be surprised if you sat down and could really come up with a reason on why we needed 450 of them. Um, I think they'd be a lot more powerful if if they combined and came together. Um, and it's it's one of the actually one of your principles I really really liked when I first saw the um, um, your your organization is that you know donors are the drivers, and and more donors. And I was just at a a, a conference last week where I, I talked to donors about this. More donors need to treat their donations like an investment. Um, mm-hmm. I was actually sitting with a group of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, and I said, how many of you made an investment in a company and didn't see the financials? Not a single hand went up. But when I asked them how many of them had made a donation to a nonprofit without seeing the financials, almost every hand went up. And, and it's because we, as donors, tend to look at the two very differently. And I think if we as donors really want to see the film profit community really hit a, 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 a crescendo and in, in, in really maximize its potential, we need to dig in more into what organizations are doing and apply the dollars in the same way we would an investment into a, a startup company.
1: I agree. Right. So dollars is the first one. Is there a mission? There might be a second
2: Um, well, the other big thing is always talent. It's always been talent. I, I, you know, I always, I I get really frustrated with the fact that you have some amazing talented people and there's still this 10% overhead you can't go over, um, without being a bad nonprofit. And, you know, if you've got someone who's extremely talented and is engaging in leading a nonprofit to some amazing successes, those individuals should be compensated as such. And and as, mm-hmm. if, we, if we continue not to do so, um, we're not gonna bring, um, not to disparage that we have some of the best and brightest in nonprofits, but I think we exclude some of the best and brightest from coming into it um, because they feel that they need to go get a job someplace else that's gonna pay more. They need to support their family in a different way. Um, but if we could provide those opportunities in the nonprofit space, um, you, you might bring other talent in that would allow the, the, the community to grow even faster.
1: Yes. Well, I've been a big believer in, in non-profits, what I call paying the rack rate, whatever that is, to acquire the right talent, uh, for sure. Um, especially when they're dealing with outside vendors, you know, I tell them, you know, don't try to negotiate some street market. Pay the rack rate. Develop a business relationship demand, service, and schedule. And then you can go back and ask a gift from those people because you have a relationship with them. They're your partners. Oh, oh. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I want to give you the opportunity to say anything that's on your mind. This is an open and free environment here. So is there something that we haven't talked about that you'd like to make sure that you say or something that you'd like just to just to get out there for people to know and and hear?
2: No, look, one of the big reasons I was was honored to be on here is I really relish organizations that are trying to take the philanthropic community to the next step. Um, The reality is if you look at philanthropies, um, there are so many things that they can do better than the government can, um, and in some cases better than the private sector can. Um, I mean, we just saw this in the past couple of months, um, with the, um, the getting of refugees out of Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, in some, in some regards as, as an American, I'm a little disappointed that the government wasn't able to do a better job. Um, but in other regards, I'm really proud of the fact that there are some amazing private people and philanthropies out there that have been doing amazing things, not just to get the people out. But then helping them to resettle, helping them to find um, their new lives as, as they transition. Um, and so, you know, but the the community itself has to continually evolve. It has to continually learn um, what new what new opportunities are out there. A lot of that, of course, in my mindset, is driven by technology. Um, but there's also just you know basic core tenets of leadership and operations. Um, and the more organizations can get out of the mindset of what they've been doing and and that seems to work and really evolve themselves and grow and capitalize on on new opportunities and learning from other organizations, all it's going to do is is allow the philanthropic community to become even stronger and
1: better at what it does. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Um, Well, Sean, I want to thank you. You've given very openly and forthrightly, and um, I've taken a lot of notes here. I'm going to be going back and thinking about what you said and how you said it, um, and I, I want to thank you for your time. Um, so if people wanted to reach out to you, I guess they'd go to Boodle AI um, and look at what you have to, to offer them, correct? or is there Absolutely.
2: No, boodle.ai, and and people are always free to reach out to me. I'm sean at boodle.ai, S H A W N.
1: How like that? He gave you his email right there. <laughs> that's, that's a guy that's a brave man right there. Um, thank you, Sean, very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Larry, thank month, you so much I, for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. And we'll have another thought leader, someone with very unique ideas next month. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this month's edition of Principles Podcasts. The Oracle League is your source for the very best fundraising knowledge and interactive learning tools. We welcome and encourage your comments and suggestions. You may reach us by emailing info at the8principles.com. Next month, Larry will have as his guest yet another successful trailblazer from the philanthropic arena. Be sure to join us. This edition of Principles Podcasts is a production of The Eight Principles, which is solely responsible for its content. Principles Podcasts are copyrighted by M.E. Grayson Associates.